Guys, let's uh, pray before we get into the message. And Father, all life is from you. Uh, nothing exists that you didn't create. Your creation is meant to glorify you in multitudes of ways, Lord. And we ask that you'd glorify and honor yourself this morning as we take in something of your word. Help us to see Christ more clearly. We ask that the sanctifying work of your spirit in us through word and fellowship, through prayer, the songs we sing, Lord, the Lord's Supper later, uh, we pray that those would all have the effect of drawing us a little bit more fully into your presence and making us a little bit more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I uh, have tons of memories uh, growing up on the playground. I loved uh, anything athletic, anything sports-related. I loved, I was good at most of the things I did, just because God was good to me in that way. And uh, growing up in grade school, primarily, if we went out on the recess um, playground, we would, probably more often than not, we would do something that required two teams. So basketball and baseball were the two primary ones. And the way we started these games went like this. Two captains were picked. The captains would pick members for their team, one after the other. And, of course, that meant that usually you had a pretty good competitive teams because each person was picking one after the other. The best athletes, of course, were chosen first. And, and unfortunately, you know, the same guys were, were always uh, recess after recess, the last to be picked also, competitive teams for sure, but you always felt a little bad for the guys that simply were not very adept athletically. You know, our deal was to win, so we picked the best first. What you find, though, when you look through scriptures is God doesn't pick and he doesn't choose the way we do. And he does so for a reason. That's what we're going to look at this morning. For context, a couple hundred years or so after Moses, you remember we pegged Moses about 1400 B.C., and after Moses we get Joshua and Israel comes into the land of promise, but, but shortly thereafter we get the period and the book of the Judges, so call it around 1200 B.C. And it's interesting, we've talked about this recently, but the period of the Judges is just this, this cyclical thing that goes on where for a while Israel's faithful to God, he's free to bless them. And as they're blessed, they turn away from him. They fall into idolatry. And so he sends oppression to get their attention. And out of that oppression, they call out to God again for a deliverer, for a judge. And then God would send a judge. And the judge would come, and he would basically, usually, raise Israel's army and defeat the enemy. They'd come back under God's blessing. And you know if you've read that book that the judges these deliverers, these saviors that God picks, they are a strange, strange group. And they are not the kind of people you and I would pick on the playground to win the game. And the one I want to look at this morning, very briefly, this is just an introduction, is out of Judges 6. And at this time in their history, the, the Midianites and the Amalekites and others from the east, they're oppressing Israel and they're hammering them. They're eating all their food. They're stealing all their livestock. And they are brought very, very low indeed. And so Judges 6.6, 6, Israel's brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So they're in the right place. They've humbled themselves. They say, Lord, sorry, we need your help. 
And God picks this guy named Gideon. And the introduction is interesting because Gideon's hiding in a wine press. And, and he, he's getting grain, which you'd normally do on top of a hill where you would be easily seen. But he's not on top of a hill because he's afraid that the bad guys are going to come along and take his grain. So he's hiding. And this angel shows up, the angel of the Lord, and speaks to him and says, Gideon, you're my man. You're going to lead the, the army of Israel. You're going to save. You're going to be the judge, the deliverer against the Midianites. And listen to what he says, Judges 6.15. Gideon says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. So in the tribe of Manasseh, my clan, we're the weakest. And in the weakest clan, I am the least in my father's house. So it's like, Lord, why would you pick me? I mean, just look at the group I'm part of, and I'm the weakest link in the weakest group. And this is what God says. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you. But I'll be with you. So your weakness is a non-issue, because I will be with you. And of course, in due time, Gideon raises an army, and they're going to take on the Midianites. And what does God say to the weakest guy in the weakest clan? He says, oh, by the way, your army's too big to face the enemy, because you guys have so many soldiers that you're going to say, if I deliver you, you'll say, well, we, we delivered ourselves. We did it. And so God says, this won't work. So through a couple different ways, he makes the army be whittled down to about 300 people. And of course, through the 300 soldiers and for the Lord and for Gideon, they defeat the Midianites. It's a great deliverance. And what you find is this pattern of God choosing the least likely for his purposes, this theme or, or this means of choosing people for God's purposes, you see this throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, God tends to choose losers, the least likely, not the brightest and the best, not the best athletes on the playground, but the worst. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning in bringing blessing to the earth and bringing deliverance from evil, ultimately in bringing in eternal salvation and populating God's eternal kingdom. God routinely chooses the weak and the lowly, not the wise and the powerful, to accomplish his will in bringing blessing to the earth, in bringing deliverance from evil, and ultimately in bringing in eternal salvation, God is accomplishing his goodwill and his work through weak or fractured vessels. This is the 12th lesson in the Deuteronomy series titled Mercy Waiting. And this morning we're going to look at the fact, we'll be in Deuteronomy 7, you can get your Bibles and turn there if you would. We're going to look at the fact that God chose Israel. When we say the chosen people, there's a reason for that. That's, that's biblical. God chose the Jews, and we'll look a little bit at why God chose the Jews to be his unique people from all, all the groups of the earth that God could have chosen. He's emphatic that he chose the Jews. We'll look a little bit at why, and then we'll take this a little further than just Israel because there's points of application I think it, it's incumbent on us to look at. So if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, I'm going to read from the ESV. And you remember the setting is Moses is going to die in short order from this point where we're reading. 
And Israel's going to go into the land of promise, and so Moses is reminding them of key elements. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, Moses says, For God, for you are a people holy to the Lord, to Yahweh your God. Uh, you're holy. You've been set apart divinely for God and God's purposes. You're holy. The Lord, Yahweh your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'm going to get one verse out of Deuteronomy 14. This is verse 2 there. Similar theme. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, specially set apart. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So we get this language with Israel specifically that God chose them. And if you go back to the second lesson in this series, you remember then we asked the question, was it okay for God to give nation status and land to some people by taking it from others? Was that okay? Because that's what God did with Israel. Do you remember? He said, I'm going to bring you into the land of promise, and you're going to dispossess all these people and their nation status. You're going to remove them. And he said, and some of the people already in the land, they're going to stay there because I brought them into the land, those people groups, and they dispossessed groups before them. And God says, and I'm responsible for all of that. And to the question, is it okay for God to give land to some and take it from others? Is it okay for God to give nation status to some and take it from others? We concluded, yes, it is, because he's God. And everyone and everything is his to do with as he sees fit. He's never less than just, ever. He can't be, but it's God's prerogative. And basically, that's what you see in the lesson again this morning. Why does God choose the way he chooses? It's his prerogative. We're going to see that the exercise of that same sovereign will occurs in the text this morning. So God says, from all the people groups in the world, he chose Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be a special, holy, treasured people. So God chooses, God says, I chose, I chose, I chose. If you look at verse 6 there where we started, Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God can pick any group he wants. He says, I chose Israel. You've got, by the way, on your study sheet, I hope you have, these are just some of the references that reiterate this same point that I think is important for us to get that God is the one doing the choosing. Israel's not, and we're not, and you're not, and I'm not. God is. Psalm 105, verse 6 says this, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Jacob is often a nickname for the nation of Israel. As Psalm 135, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession could choose anyone he wants. He says, Israel's mine. Isaiah 41.8 is one of my favorite passages along this line that talks about this chosen quality of the Jews. Uh, here, Isaiah says, uh, for God, uh, Israel, my servant, 
Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend. I love the language there. Israel's my servant, Jacob's my chosen, and Abraham's my friend. He says, uh, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. And then very similar in Isaiah 44.1, Hear, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, another nickname for Israel, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. You get the theme. This is throughout the Old Testament, and it's into the New, too, frankly. But God says repeatedly, out of all the people groups on the earth, I chose Israel. I chose Israel. Now, what's God's criteria? God's never less than just. We, have, we come into these discussions or into these texts with this. God can never be untrue to his character. So anything God does, it's never less than what we might call fair, but a better term is just. God can't do anything that's unjust. So what's his criteria for choosing the Jews? Were they superior to the other groups? Did they possess some unique positive qualities that God looked down, like the guys on the playground, and he says, this is the best group. They have the greatest strength. They have the the best qualifications, and so I pick this group. Well, maybe not. Uh, Look back at the text there, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It was not because, God gives us some reasons why he did not choose it. These aren't the reasons he says, I chose you. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. So God says, it's not that I looked on the world and I looked for for the strength of numbers, a people group that simply was massive, be like China today. God was choosing on the earth today. It was numbers 1.4 billion people. We'll get you, right? But he says, no, it's not that you were superior in numbers. You were few compared to other nation groups. This is scoot ahead a couple of chapters to Deuteronomy 9, excuse me, uh, verses 4 through 6. Don't say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, the peoples of the land, before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And I would say on this topic, uh, the second lesson in this series covers this issue about Israel displacing the nations. And that was was a prophetic fulfillment that God spoken to uh, Abraham earlier. Verse 5, not because of your righteousness... Or the uprightness of your heart? Are you going in to possess the land? So the the chosen people are going into the chosen land. It's not because of the uprightness of your heart. Verse 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So you get the picture three times God says it's not about you. It's not that you're righteous. It's not your sterling character and your sterling quality. That's not the reason I chose you. Three times, we get the point. 
In 924, God says, You've been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you, from Moses' pen there. You've been rebellious as long as I've known you. God calling his chosen people stiff-necked and stubborn, this is common throughout the Old Testament. And God says, it's not because you were all that that I chose you. It's not strength of numbers, it's not moral superiority, it wasn't their righteousness, it wasn't the upstanding nature of their heart. And God says all this clearly for this reason. He wanted Israel to know that his choosing them and his gift of the land had no direct connection to any claim they might make based on their own superiority, merit, or righteousness. God choosing them, God gifting them, the land had nothing to do with what they deserved. So why did God choose Israel? Deuteronomy 4.37 says this, He loved your fathers, and he chose their offspring. Why did God choose Israel? Well, because he loved your fathers. That's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He loved your fathers, and he chose their offspring. That's why God chose Israel. Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, He's confirming the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's keeping the promise he made to former generations. Deuteronomy 10.15 says this, The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So if we say we know some reasons that he didn't, it wasn't his motivation, some things weren't his motivation, but now he says, well, this is why I've chosen you, because I've loved your fathers and because I'm keeping the promises I made to them. If you go back to Genesis 12, when we're not doing that this morning, you remember the famous and really pivotal passage in the Old Testament, in fact, one of the pivotal passages in all the Bible, where God chose Abram from Ur of the Chaldees and said, you're my man, and you go where I show you, and I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. You're going to be great. But ultimately, it's a messianic promise there in Genesis 12. And God says, Abram's my man. Isaac, you remember, is the son of promise. They couldn't have had Isaac without God's supernatural intervention. And then Jacob comes from them. So you got the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says, I made promises to the patriarchs that I chose in love, and I'm keeping my promises. Now, <laughs> that just puts the question back one more, doesn't it? Why did God choose Israel? Because he chose Abraham. Well, why did he choose Abraham? Do you know what the answer is? God doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. So on one hand, he says, I chose Israel because I, I loved Abraham, and I made promises to him. But why Abraham instead of someone, some other pagan, some other idolater from the same neighborhood? God doesn't tell us that. That's his prerogative. So we, we displace the question, one, okay, Israel, because the fathers, the patriarchs, but why the patriarchs? Don't know. We conclude this. God choosing Israel as his unique people and the group to whom he would reveal himself and his salvation was done out of his sovereign mercy and grace, not what they deserved, sovereign mercy and grace, all born out of his out of his self-initiating love, 
His choice was not initiated by the quality of the objects of his love, but by his own mercy and grace. That's probably an important concept for you and me today, don't you think? If we get what we deserve, that may not be a good thing. What you find is this doesn't just pertain to Israel. This goes throughout the whole Bible, this notion that God's choosing, and he's not choosing the way we would choose. If you go to the New Testament, when Jesus shows up on the scene, Israel's promised Messiah shows up on the scene, and he needs to choose some followers. He knows what's going to happen. Others don't, but he knows. He's going to choose those 12 key followers he calls apostles, which means they're going to be the special ones he commissions to go out with his message. Luke 6 tells us he prayed all night, and then he goes down, and from all the disciples he had, there's a whole lot more than 12, it says, uh, and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So Jesus chose the apostles, very specifically. If you go to John 15, 16, Jesus says to the apostles, remember this is the night before he suffers, you didn't choose me, I chose you, I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. So when Jesus chose the apostles, what was the criteria for this group? So were they the superior, the morally superior group? Were they better in number? Was, there, was it their character? You, you get the, was it all the positive? Would they be the guy in the playground we pick? Maybe not. Uh, like Israel, Jesus chose these 12 men, these apostles, more for their liabilities than their assets. And of course, when you read, we're sympathetic, of course. If we were among that group, we would look as bad as they did at times and as good perhaps at other times as well. So we're sympathetic with this. But these were not the brightest and best bulbs in Israel. You remember, he's got a tax collector. He's got fishermen. These are blue-collar workers. None of that group, of that 12, none of them are the academics of Israel. None of them are from the key rabbinical schools. None of them are among the Sadducees that run the temple, that are wealthy, that are socially connected. Jesus chose the losers, the lowly, when he wanted to pick out apostles, key men that were going to take his message to the world. He didn't choose like you and I would on the recess ground. He chose the lowly, fishermen, tax collectors, you name it. So there's a theme going on here, isn't there? So why did he choose Israel? Well, we get it. Okay, love the patriarchs. Don't know why he chose that set. But then when he speaks to Israel, he says, it's not for your sterling qualities. It's not why he chose you, because you don't have them. You get to the apostles, it's like, okay, Jesus, these guys have got to carry your message when you're gone. Man, they got to be the brightest and best. And he says, well, no, again, they're going to be among the lowly. They will not be the ones you would pick. Hmm, I wonder if this applies today. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the early churches, he used the same wording the Old Testament has used for Israel. God was still choosing a people for his name, primarily now from among the Gentiles, of course. And we'll, we'll talk about, we'll flesh this out just a little bit here in a minute. But from Ephesians 1.4, same language. Paul writes to the Ephesian believers. He says, God the Father chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy... Well, that's just like Deuteronomy, isn't it? God's holy, chosen, set-apart people, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Paul says God chose. 
First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Colossians 3, verse 12, last one I'll use here. Put on then, you Christians, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, holy again, just like Israel, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So what do God's chosen in the age of the church look like? So has God been choosing the morally superior? Are those the folks in the churches that Paul's addressing? Would that be the case today? The morally superior. You know, I'm among the chosen because I'm, I'm all that. I'm pretty good. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good. And so I could see God choosing me. Or maybe not. What do we do? You know, where, where do we go with this? So for, this would be a good passage to turn to because I've got about 10 verses here I want to walk through. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 31. Unfortunately, the church at Corinth probably looks a lot like the church in the West or like the Western cultures generally, which is to say Corinth was an important city. It was a wealthy city. It was a city of status. They had all the good stuff. And the church that was born there when Paul proclaimed the gospel, of course, they brought a lot of the cultural world values with them into the church. You know, all of us do that. We can't help that to some degree, right? Because God sanctifies us over time. So we bring our, the thoughts that we've grown up with, that's what we bring with us when we're saved, until God shows us something better. And so Paul's addressing this church, and guys, they're proud. They're proud. And they think they're all that. And they want to impress themselves and each other with their spiritual gifts and, and all that's going on. It's all contrary. This is, the, this is the epistle where God brings up what we call the love chapter. It's because they're not loving. It's because they've set their eyes on inferior things instead of what God considered most important. So what does Paul say to the chosen in Corinth that maybe God's saying to you and me and people just like us today? So 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 31, Paul says, and this sets it up, and then we'll get to the specific language I want to look at. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs authenticating miracles. You remember in the Gospels, they, they tell Jesus, show us a miracle, show us a sign, and maybe we'll believe in you. So Jews are demanding signs, which they got, which wasn't enough anyway. And Greeks seek wisdom. Remember even the Roman culture, it's the Greek philosophy that still rules the day. They loved philosophy. They loved the academic. They loved great oratory. So he says, and the Greeks, they're looking for a great story, great wisdom, great philosophy. He said, but we preach Christ crucified. This doesn't fit either of those categories. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, verse 25 is what we want to look at specifically. Consider your calling. So Paul says, look at yourself and then look around the room. 
Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. This is a nice way of saying you're not very bright, you Corinthian Christians. He doesn't say there's none. He just says most of you aren't. He says uh, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. It doesn't say none, but not many. The wise or the powerful, they'd be the exception, not the rule. Not many were of noble birth. Okay, so just like Israel, he says, I didn't choose you for these reasons. Okay, well, Lord, why did you choose us? Well, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Lord, why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's a reference to Jeremiah 9. We'll look at that in just a little bit. Guys, this really, uh, this is meant to cut out human pride from those who follow Christ. If you go to the Old Testament, and if you read the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, it's just the language is lofty. It's the crazy visions, Isaiah 6. It's the lofty language of the servant, and it's, yeah, it's great stuff. And Isaiah, he's got to be the best guy on the earth in his day, or certainly one of them, Isaiah. But what does he say when God shows him, shows Isaiah, what his righteousness looks like compared to God's standard of perfection? He says, well, my righteousness looks like filthy rags. I thought I was dressed up nice, and he says, no, not quite. If you go to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, and he's got this vision. There's two olive trees, and one of them is Joshua the high priest. Now, guys, in Israel, Joshua the high priest, he's as holy as it gets, isn't he? Because he's the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of the sacrifice and make petition for Israel and for the nation. If there's anybody holy on the earth, it's him. But when Zechariah sees him, what does he see? He's standing before God, what does he see? He says, well, you're dirty. Your clothes are dirty. You, you need some new clothing. You can't stand in God's presence dressed the way you are. Here are the Corinthians, and frankly, sometimes this is you and me too, isn't it? Lord, thanks that I'm all that. And God's just like, doesn't work. The best of us before God, we have nothing to bring but our unrighteousness, just like Israel, just like the apostles. That's true of those in the church today. We have nothing to boast of. And God means to cut off every thought, every temptation we have, to stand in his presence and declare our righteousness or to stand before others and declare our righteousness. So Paul's point here, which is out of Jeremiah the prophet, is God's making it so that when you want to boast, and it's real and it's true, the only thing you'll be able to boast in is Christ. It's what God has done for you in Christ. It has nothing to do with what you brought in. It's God has blessed you because he loved you in Christ. And all of our hopes and all of our expectations and all of our standing is in Christ, and that's perfect. But God has cut off all boasting, and he's always done that 
done that all the way along. James 2 verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God's chosen the poor of the world. Now, if we ask the why question again, and this is a good question, why is it that the objects of God's choosing aren't generally among the best and brightest? We say, well, it is so God gets the glory. It's so that we don't try and honor or glorify ourselves. It's so that God gets the glory. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, this was a lesson the Apostle Paul learned. And you remember, Paul was sort of the exception to the rule. He says, I'm kind of like an apostle that was born late in time. I'm like the guy that was in gestation too long, but I finally got out. But Paul's bright. He's really bright. You know, he'd be like a PhD of PhDs. He studied under Gamaliel, and he is smart, and he knows the Old Testament. And he knows he's smart, and he knows, you know, God's taken him on that road and said, you're mine, I'm going to use you, okay. Maybe Paul's thinking I'm all that. And so what does God do? So God intentionally gives him something Paul doesn't want. It says a thorn in the flesh, and one text says it's a demon that's assaulting him somehow. There's another text that might infer that it's an eye issue, that his eyes have, have an issue. But in either, either case, Paul pleads with God three times, Lord, would you take this away? Because you could heal me, that you could take this away. And God says, nope, I'm not doing it. Why is that? Because he wants Paul like the people in Gideon's day, to be needy so that Paul knows what's going on through his ministry isn't about Paul. It's about God. And he says it this way. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So if we say Israel, apostles, Christians, Lord, why are you choosing the way you choose? He says, well, I'm choosing the lowly. I'm choosing those guys on the playground that they don't know how to play basketball, and they can't hit a pitch if you, know, if you put it in front of them. Because that way, when they hit a home run, everybody knows that's not about them. That's what God did. God's making sure that he gets the honor because he's using vessels that aren't really a good fit to start with. And that's us. That was Israel. That was the apostles. And that's believers today. This is still going on. God gets the glory. Now, I want to touch on something briefly. I think it's important, and I, I'll, I'll mention briefly. If you, We say this. Uh, we live in the day or the age of, we call it the spirit, or we call it the age of the church, and it's a fair question to ask, what about Israel? Israel was God's chosen people. There's chosen people ministries that share the gospel with Jews today. What about the Jews? God chose them. Are they still chosen? And this, this is a big question. This is a, this is a huge theological question. It, it's uh, determined usually by how you interpret Scripture and how you put one thing and another together. But I want to say a couple things about it. The first is this. In Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6, as Paul's given this great theology to the believers in Ephesus, he sort of has this digression in which he says, oh, by the way, have you heard about the administration that God's brought in, basically through me, through his apostleship? And he says, there's this mystery that God never told Israel about. And the mystery is the church, that God was one day going to break down the wall that divided Jews from Gentiles called the law, 
And he was going to make one new body out of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says God didn't give anybody the information beforehand. And that's why the Jews in the chapters of Acts and early in the church, they didn't know what to do because they're still trying to be faithful Jews under the law. And it's, it's decades before they get the thing, oh, this, God's changed gears. God had changed gears, but he hadn't told them beforehand what he was going to do. So in the age, last 2,000 years, this is the only lens we've got. It's the church. And related to the Jews, Jews are part of the church, but the church is primarily Gentile. And so Paul says, well, that's why these things are going on. That's what's, that's what's shaken. That's what God's up to today. It's the church. He's saving a people for his name out of the Gentiles primarily now. So Israel, he says, and we'll read this in Romans 11, Israel's been temporarily set aside, God's chosen people. But ultimately, he says, Israel will be saved. And not a few. Um, if you read through Romans, uh, it's very methodical, and part of Romans is, is a response to questions Paul knows the Roman Christians have already been, been asking. But he also infers questions that he knows they probably would. And so you go through the development of the theology in Romans, and you get chapters 1, 2, and up to the middle of chapter 3, and you get that everybody's guilty before God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And then the second half of 3 is we've got propitiation, we've got forgiveness through Christ. And chapter 4, how do you lay hold of the forgiveness in Christ? Well, it's through faith, just like Father Abraham. Well, you get to chapter 6, 7, and 8, and it's about the Christian life and the life of the Spirit and the Spirit's in us, and that's how we overcome sin. And as chapter 8 winds down, you've got the language of God choosing the Christians and nothing can separate them from God's love. That's how chapter 8 winds down. Well, Paul infers a question among these Gentiles, and the question is this. Paul, you've just told us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What about the Jews? The Jews were chosen, and we don't see it going very well for them. And so Paul says two things. He says, well, one, some Jews are still being saved today. He says it's like a remnant. It's, there's not a lot of them, but he says some are being saved like me, Paul says. But then he says, but don't be mistaken because all Israel, the nation, is still going to be saved. This is Romans 11. Verse 25 through 27, Paul says this, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And this is language that goes all the way back to Isaiah 6. This is language Jesus picks up in the Gospels, this sovereign hardening of his chosen people. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So a bunch of Gentiles, that'd be most of us, are going to get saved. And in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, he's quoting Isaiah 59 here, the deliverer, that's the Messiah, Jesus, will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob, God's chosen people, are going to come at a point in their, their life where there's no more sin in them as a nation. And he, he furthers this thought when he says, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Do we know of an Old Testament passage about God having a covenant with Israel in which he takes away their sins? We call this the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31. 
So here is Paul saying, oh, by the way, Israel's been temporarily set aside, but all Israel will be saved because the Messiah is going to drive all ungodliness out of Israel, and they're going to live under the new covenant when God does away with their sins, writes his law in their heart. So he says all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty nine through 32, and this is the deal, and this goes straight back to the end of chapter 8. If we're safe forever, what happened to the Jews? Maybe we're not that safe. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's choice remains God's choice. Some, some translations will say without repentance. God doesn't change his mind on this. God made a sovereign choice knowing everything Israel was and would ever be. And the apostles and you and I, it says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's, it's a commitment God has made because he's God. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, we won't try and develop all this, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We, we saw this in the first, the first week of this series. Every, every good thing we get is because of God's mercy. And that's the same thought here. That's the wind down. God made a commitment. He's going to keep it to Israel and to you. You can count on it. And I won't, for time's sake, I won't read these, but look at Isaiah 54 and also look at the language in Jeremiah 31 on the new covenant because in both of those passages, God essentially says this. If the cosmos falls apart, Israel will quit being a nation. If the sun, the moon, and the stars, if they quit doing their thing, then maybe Israel will quit being a nation. But as long as the cosmos is revolving the way it always has, God says, count on it, Israel's a nation, and they're chosen by me. Count on it. I love that God keeps his promises. I want to wind down with this. If you and I were going to send a Savior into the world, what would he look like? So we got a rebel world, right? we got a world at odds with... God, and man, we're going to send somebody in to clean this place up. What would he look like? You know, he'd probably be this great warlord, probably look a lot like Psalm 2, the Messiah, or Revelation 19. Jesus, you know, on a war horse, not a little donkey, on a war horse, you know, you can't look at him, eyes, face like the sun. You know, he's coming in as a warrior king, right? That's my idea of uh, God, me sending. He looks like a winner, in other words. He looks like a winner. But when God wanted to defeat sin, Satan, and death, uh, what did the Savior look like? Not, not like Revelation 19. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. When God sent a Savior into the world, he looked weak, he looked lowly, he looked insignificant, he looked like a loser. And God, speaking through Isaiah, says, He grew up, the Messiah grew up before him, the Lord, like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. This is a struggling little plant. This thing doesn't look like it's going to make it. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. We're not picking him out of the lineup as a potential savior. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. 
That's the Savior God sends into the world. Looks a lot like the people he chooses for himself. Christians today embrace a crucified Savior as Israel will, and perhaps one day soon. You know, Zechariah says they will look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn like a mother for an only son. It's like it was him all along, and we'd rejected him. The symbol of our salvation, the cross, which we tend to forget because it's an adornment, it's an accoutrement to what we put on perhaps with our, our clothing for the day, was a symbol of weakness and death, and yet in Christ, weakness leads to strength and death leads to life because of the power of God. You know, Scripture says that Jesus died in weakness, but he was raised in power. But when he came to save us from sin, Satan, and death, he came in weakness, not in power. Here's some points of application as we wind down. If we see in ourselves not strength and perfection, but unrighteousness, we're exactly the kind of person Jesus came to seek and save. If I look at my life and I say I'm not all that, I see my failures, I see that I'm morally culpable, I see that I sin and that I blow it, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. If you think you're righteous, you're not for me. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm calling sinners to myself, Jesus says. Or if I look at myself and I realize I'm not sufficient, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If we're not self-sufficient, if we're not righteous, Jesus is calling us. Have you trusted Christ and Christ alone to save you? When we feel weak and inadequate, that's because we are. And that's a great place to be. Because then we can say, Lord, we're not all that. We can't do this. It'll have to be you and your power. Transforming ourselves, right? Do we not get discouraged and disappointed with ourselves when we sin? It's like, Lord, I can't believe I did that again. God's like, I knew you would do this. You haven't disappointed me. I've set my love on you, and we're in that process of transformation. It's a long road. And God knows. God knows every one of our future sins just as well as he knows our past. When we have opportunity to share the gospel with others, we can do so knowing this, and I love this. You know, there's, in this sense, there's not a bad way to share the gospel because consider this. God uses weak people, that's us, to share a foolish message. If you feel like this is dumb, that's great because the gospel is folly to the world. So God uses weak people to share a foolish message about a crucified Savior, about a loser, in order to bring about new birth and salvation. So God is in the business of choosing, and he's not choosing the most able and the brightest. He's picking the guys on the playground that they can't shoot hoops and they don't know how to hit a baseball. And he says, you're exactly what I'm looking for. Because when I accomplish my will, I'm going to be the one who gets the glory, not you. You're an instrument in my hand in that sense. And that's all of us. That's a pretty good place to be. I love that. Well, if you would, yeah, rise, please. And I'd like to close by reading together from Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. This is a great text to remind us of who's ultimately in charge, and, and what do we really have to boast in. So if you would, please, let's read this, and then we will worship together. 
Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in 